My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm a name tag person. If you wear a name tag, you're my best friend forever because I'm not so great with names. Um, but uh, glad you could be here this morning. Happy New Year to you. Uh, my family and I lived in Latin America for 12 years, and we found that you can say Happy New Year to people all the way till the end of January if you haven't greeted them already. So this is my uh, New Year's greeting to each one of you here today. Um, when we returned, or actually when we went to South America back in the end of the 1970s, we left uh, the United States, and the station wagon kind of reigned supreme in that day and age. This was the family car of choice, and I know most everybody here has had experience with station wagons, uh, so you know what I'm talking about. Uh, when we returned about a dozen years later to the States, we, we landed in the land of the minivan. The minivan had now come of age, and it was the family car of choice, uh, and my wife decided that we needed a minivan. We were just a family of four. I wasn't sure why, but she felt we needed a minivan, and we started shopping, and we found a uh, Mitsubishi minivan. Now, you may not recognize that because Mitsubishi only sold it for one year in the States, and there's a reason they only sold it for one year. It didn't sell well at all. It was, it was all the rage in Asia and still is. For some of you that travel in Asia, you will actually recognize it, uh, but it just didn't, it, it wasn't cool enough at all to be uh, a hot seller here in the States. But we found this minivan. It was six years old and it had only 20,000 miles on it. I was like, how could we not get this vehicle? And so we did. And for the next 242,000 miles, this vehicle was a member of our family. Now, my children, they were both teenagers at, at the time, and you just look at it, and there is no cool factor there whatsoever, okay? So my children didn't even want to be picked up in front of school, wait around the corner, this type of deal. And as, as I asked Linda to look through some of our old pictures to come up with, that's not ours, by the way, I'll show you ours in a second. I, I asked her to come up with a picture. She couldn't find any pictures with our kids or her standing in front of the car. The only one she could come up with was me in front of the van. Because I really did like this vehicle. I mean, it was extremely versatile. We drove it all over the place and, and had it for many years, and it was a wonderful vehicle. Except the cruise control didn't work. I'd never owned a vehicle with a cruise control. This one had a factory cruise control on it, but it didn't work. And so, you know, I'm an aircraft mechanic, all right? So I, so I dove into it, and I, and I poured over the manuals, and I followed schematics, and the wiring was good, and the electric was good, but it just didn't work. And finally, I waved the white flag, and I took it into the dealership. I said, no cruise control. Can you? Oh, sure, Mr. Swanson, we'll fix it and call you as soon as it's done. And they didn't call, and they didn't call. And they finally called, and they said, ah, we're really sorry, but we can't fix this thing. We can't make it work. So the next step is to start replacing expensive electronic components and see if we can figure it out. And I didn't like the sounds of that at all. And I said, I'll live with it without the cruise control. So for the next 150,000 miles, my family and I, we crossed the country and back. And we went north to south. And we took long road trips and never had any cruise control. I could turn this little switch on and a little orange light would come on and just mock me. Because it just wouldn't work. And so one Sunday afternoon, I can remember it like it was yesterday. I was driving from eastern Tennessee where we live down to Knoxville. 
Linda was beside me in the passenger seat, sound asleep. There were a couple people in the back. We were taking to Knoxville. They were sound asleep. It was just me and my thoughts and my cruise control. And I looked down there, and one more time, I flipped the little switch over, and it didn't work, and it made my blood pressure go up just a little bit. And then for some other reason, I have no idea why, I reached down again, and I slid that little switch over. You know, it's the one that says set on it. I slid it over again, but I held it there. For maybe a second, maybe slightly more. And all of a sudden, the accelerator moved away from my foot. And the cruise control took over. And I could accelerate and I could decelerate and I could turn it off and turn it on. And everything worked in the system. And I thought, how crazy that this thing all of a sudden started working after I'd driven this car 150,000 miles. And I realized that wasn't the case at all. I'd been working all along. I just didn't hold the switch over long enough. Now, I don't know what the excuse was for the mechanic in the, in the shop there, but that was my excuse. I just hadn't held the switch over, and I found if I would just hold it over for about a second, it would engage the cruise control. It worked perfectly. For the next, like, 100,000 miles that we had that vehicle, used the cruise control all the time. Better gas mileage, safer, less fatigue, and I had not even realized that it was there all along. And hadn't benefited at all from having a cruise control. Now the reason I tell you that is because the the truth from Scripture that I want us to look at this morning falls right into that category. It's been there all along. You just had the verses read to you. And my guess is for 95% of you, as you heard those verses read, it was like, yeah, I know that. I've heard Jesus say that. You, you, You get it, right? Let me just respectfully say that I think a lot of us don't get it. I think there's a piece that's missing that's been there all along, but we're not turning the switch on. And my hope and my prayer is this morning that as we leave here, that we'll have a new piece of information that will be extremely helpful to us. This piece of information actually comes in the form of a command, and it comes out of the lips of Jesus himself. For most of us, that's a little bit incongruous. Jesus and commands, commands are Old Testament, right? That's Moses, that's the law, the Ten Commandments, the legalism, thou shalt, thou shalt not, right? But Jesus is is grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. And you're absolutely right. But every once in a while, Jesus throws in a command. And I think we need to pay attention to that. Because when he does, he's doing it to get our attention. He's doing it because it's that important. The context that we're looking at here this morning in this first passage of Scripture is a, is a religious leader, a, a, a legal expert that comes to Jesus to try to catch him in his word and words. And he asks him this question, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment in all the law? Now, this was Jesus' perfect opportunity to say to this guy, don't talk to me about law. That was then, this is now, this is new, this is grace. But Jesus doesn't do that. He actually agrees with the guy. And Jesus replies to him, well, here it is. It's love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. So so Jesus says the greatest commandment is, is love. No surprise coming out of the lips of Jesus. And he says the object of this first commandment is God. 
Love God with everything in you, Jesus says. And this religious leader, no doubt, would nod his head in agreement. Jesus is taking a command from the Old Testament, one that had been around for for centuries, and he's bringing it right up to his present day, and he's making it valid, and he's saying, "This this is still in force. God's people should be about loving God with everything in them first and foremost. And it's still in force for us today. That's why we're here this morning. We gather together to worship. And if you notice the words of the songs that we sang, they're they're songs of praise to God. We come and we worship God in response to that first and greatest commandment. We, We align our priorities with God's priorities in response to that first and greatest commandment. So it's still in effect. It's still in force. But Jesus goes on with this religious leader and he didn't, the guy didn't ask for the second one, but Jesus gives it to him anyways. He says, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And again, he pulls this commandment out of the Old Testament. It was very familiar to this religious leader. And again, the religious leader would have been nodding in agreement. Yeah, go Jesus, you got it right. But then Jesus does something with this second commandment. He breathes new life into it. Because for this religious leader, for this Pharisee, to love your neighbor as yourself meant you had to know who your neighbor was. And for this guy, neighbor was very narrowly defined. Neighbor would have been somebody who who looked like him, who spoke like him, who believed like him, and was probably the same gender as him. And if you fell into that narrow category, this guy was all about calling you neighbor and loving you. And you know what happened after that. Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And he shows this guy, no, actually, you're totally wrong in how you define neighbor. And when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, which we won't go into today, but the point he makes is that neighbor is anybody who's out there who needs a neighbor. And that rocked this guy's world. That's not what he wanted to hear at all. But Jesus takes this commandment from the Old Testament, brings it up to present, and he totally redefines neighbor for this guy. Now, that's still in force for us today, too. That's, that's our second commandment as well. And that's why we do things as a congregation, like send hundreds of wheelchairs around the world every year to people we will never see. We have no idea what they think about us, what they believe, nothing. All we know is they have a need and we can do something about that need. They're our neighbor. And Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so we do that every every year. That's why we educate children in Guatemala, kids who would never get more than a sixth grade education. We say, no, we can do something about that. We don't, we don't know their names. Oh, a few of us do. Most of us don't know their names and we'll never meet them, but we've learned that they have a need that we can do something about. They're our neighbor. And so we understand what it means to love your neighbor. This first commandment and the second commandment, I would say, for the most part, we get it. We know what Jesus is talking about when he says these things, and they still apply to us today. Now, I want to point out here in Jesus' response is that he sort of gives a numerical value to these two commandments. He calls the, the original one to love God the first 
And then he calls the one to love neighbor itself the second. So he gives this numerical value. And I'd like to just kind of follow that theme and say, the first commandment, I'm going to call love 1.0. This is a starting point. This is basic. We don't, we don't ever quit loving God with everything in us. And the second one, I'm calling love 2.0. Neighbor is the object of love. And these are both commands that have been given and that Jesus says they're still in full force. But Jesus is not finished with commands. He adds an additional one, and that's what I want us to look at this morning. He doesn't call it the third commandment. He has some different language for it. But the setting is the Last Supper. The disciples who were there with Jesus didn't know it was the last meal they would ever eat with Jesus before he went to the cross, but Jesus did. And so he was giving them some last words and some, some uh, word pictures and examples that he wanted to stay with them. That was the night that he washed their feet. Do you remember that? When Jesus took the form of a servant and he got down and he washed his disciples' feet. This is when he instituted the Lord's Supper that we celebrated last week, the bread and the wine, to remember Jesus. That all happened in that last supper. But Jesus also had some words for his disciples. And he said to them as they were gathered there, he said, A new command I give you. He'd never done this before. He was never going to do it after. This is the only time that Jesus says to his followers, I'm giving you a new commandment. This should have got their attention. They should have perked up and listened to what Jesus had for them. And, and it probably comes as no surprises that, that this third commandment is exactly the same as the first and the second in, in the sense that it was to love. The first one to love God with everything in us. The second one to love neighbor as self. And Jesus says this new commandment is to love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And here's where many of us, I think, have, have gotten off the road a little bit. We read this commandment. We hear the words of Jesus. And we nod our heads and we say, well, of course, Jesus is all about love and he wants us to love everybody. And really, he's just reiterating the second commandment to love neighbor. I've heard that. I've heard that said. I've even heard that taught before. And I would like to challenge that thinking this morning, because I would suggest that Jesus is doing something new in this commandment. He's not just repeating love your neighbor. I think if we look at the context and we look at the word choice that Jesus makes, that we will understand that he is indeed saying something very different than love your neighbor. In Matthew's account of the Last Supper, he tells us exactly who's in the room. It's the twelve. It's those closest followers of Jesus. Twelve that had been up for three years. Some were told that Jesus was 72 followers and he sent them out. And gave them a task to do. Other times we're told that Jesus is with large crowds. That wasn't the case here. This was the intimate group. Just the twelve. Those that Jesus has handpicked to be his closest followers. He designated them as apostles. And they would be the ones to take up where Jesus left off. After Jesus was gone. They were also the ones who didn't do such a good job. Of loving each other. 
As we look in the Gospels, we see times where Jesus and his disciples were walking on the road and Jesus says to them, what were you guys talking about back there? And they wouldn't answer him because what they were doing is they were arguing about which one of them was the greatest. And there were other times when a couple of the disciples kind of got off by themselves and they cornered Jesus and said, we got this request for you. When, when you're reigning in your kingdom, we want to be your two right-hand guys. We're going to be your, your two first lieutenants. They were very willing to throw the rest of the guys under the bus if it gave them a little more stature or standing. The, these 12 didn't come from the same place. They were very different in terms of their socioeconomic class and their education. At least one of them had worked for the Romans before taxing the very Jewish people for the Romans. And now Jesus had called him to be a follower of his. Could we even trust that guy? He's the guy who used to shake us down all the time. And so the 12 really didn't experience a lot of love for one another. That's who Jesus was talking to when he gave them this new commandment. And as we look at the words, the the word new, as I said before, tells us that this is something different that he's saying to these guys here that are in the room with him right then. And when he says one another, what he wants them to do is to look across the table, look into the eyes of the other guys that are seated around the room right now. This isn't about loving neighbor. No, we've covered that already. This isn't about loving your enemy. Jesus had already taught about that. It's not about loving yourself. Jesus knew that they'd pretty well figured out how to love themselves. But this was an inward focus. He was telling the 12 at this point in time, forget about the needs out there. Forget about the world. I want you guys to learn how to love each other in this room. This was a very inward focused command that Jesus was giving to them. And when Jesus completes his statement there, he says to them, by this, by this love that you demonstrate for each other, will everyone know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What Jesus is saying there is if you guys can get this right, if you can learn how to truly love each other, those of you in this room here, if you can do this, this will validate your identity in the world. This will validate the fact that you are connected to me, Jesus says. It's that important. And if you don't get this right, the message that you send to anybody that's watching is exactly the opposite. You guys are fragmented. You're talking about Jesus, but you can't even get along with each other. Why should we pay any attention to what you have to say? It was that significant. It was that powerful what Jesus was commanding them to do. So the conclusion that I have come to with this new command is that it falls right in between the first command and the second command. Now, why do I say that? Why can't it be love 3.0? You know, it kind of came that way chronologically. Well, here's why. If we ever hope, and if the disciples, the followers of Jesus ever hoped to get love your neighbor right, we have to get love one another correct first. And so I put it right in the middle. 
I call it love 1.5. Yes, love God with everything in us first and foremost. But then we've got to learn how to love each other because God's program, God's plan is that we be unified and strong so that we can go out and love our neighbors. And if we don't get 1.5 right, then we're never going to do a good job at 2.0. This isn't really rocket science. Corporate America understands this. Professional athletics understand this. If they have teams that, that are functioning well together, that trust each other, that have each other's backs, they're going to be way more effective than if there's teams where people are posturing for position and, and, and doing this behind one another's backs and, and don't have the good of the whole team together. This is, this is common knowledge out there. This is very practical what Jesus is commanding his followers and for us to be about. The challenge for us in a growing church, which by the way we are, if you want to look around, the challenge for us is this context right here in this room is a really lousy place to learn and practice loving one another. Now, I know when I say that, there's a few of you that kind of bristle at that. It's like, wait a minute. Some of these people around me are my best friends, and we hugged each other already. This I get that. I get that. Some of you have long-standing relationships here. You truly love each other, and that's a wonderful thing. But for the majority of us, when we walk through the door in the morning, and somebody shakes our hand and smiles at us, and we sit down, and later somebody makes us stand up and turn and shake hands with somebody around us, and then it's over, and we walk out the door... That is never going to work to develop the kind of relationship and community that Jesus is talking about when he tells the 12 to love one another. This doesn't work for that. That's kind of the bad news. Because if this is all that we do as a church, then we're never getting to that place of really loving one another well. Now, thankfully, God gives us a really good example of what this should look like in the second chapter of Acts. After Jesus went to the cross and, and was buried and rose from the grave and returned to the Father, the, the apostles, who I believe got this, they applied it, and we see that now played out in what this very early church looked like in the book of Acts. And uh, Luke is telling us what's going on in the church, and he gives us some examples. But he tells us that the church, these, these, these believers, they were meeting together at the temple regularly, kind of like us here in the larger group. But then he also said they were meeting together in homes. And this became very significant for the early church. And so significant that Luke gives us five things that were happening in the early church as they were meeting together in these small groups. He said they were devoting themselves to the Word of God in their, in their living rooms or their, their little houses wherever they met together. They were talking about the Word of God and they were receiving the teaching of the Word of God together as, as a small group. And he tells us they were devoted to building community. They, they were interested in one another. They were learning about each other and learning what their needs were and they were learning to know and be known in that smaller group. He tells us they were devoted to eating together, 
which is always a good thing for most of us. But it's also a great sense of intimacy as we gather around a meal together, no matter how simple it may be. He said they were devoted to prayer. That was a significant part of what they did as they gathered. And that they were devoted to looking out for each other. Luke concludes by giving us the consequences of what they were experiencing in these small group settings together. He said that they were people of joy, that with glad hearts they were doing this community that he talked about there. He said their reputation was growing among people around them. They were being noticed. People saw what was going on and they were attracted to it. People thought well of them. They weren't trying to hide anything. And finally, he said there was numerical growth. And I can only imagine that as people were attracted to it and, and checked it out, hey, what's going on over at your house? Well, come and see. Come and join us. And then they didn't want to leave. And so there was actually numerical growth in the church because they had figured out how to love one another. They had figured out what Jesus was talking about when he gave that commandment to the twelve. I would say that this is one of our biggest challenges, church, in 2014. Making sure that we've figured out how to love one another the way Jesus has, has put it forth in this commandment. Now, I know that to a, to a degree I'm preaching to the choir here because I know there are several of you that are already involved in smaller groups, much smaller than this group right here, and you are enjoying the full benefits of it. And if anybody told you you had to quit meeting with your small group, you'd rebel because you love it. And you are experiencing all that God has for you in that setting. If that's where you find yourself today, I'm delighted. But my challenge to you is, who have you invited lately to go with you into that setting? Because a lot of us won't go unless somebody invites us. And if you're experiencing something good, I think you ought to share it with somebody else and invite them to join with you in whatever that small group setting might be that you're in. And for the rest of us that may not be experiencing that right now, or maybe we have in the past, or maybe we never have, then my challenge to you today is this is the time. that 2014 is the year for you to take that step. And, and yes, it's a risk. I understand that. Nobody likes to be new. But take the risk. It, it, the risk. It's well worth it to get involved in a smaller group of people because it's God's design. And it's not something that's optional that we can say, well, I'm going to do this, but I'm not going to do that. You're not going to experience everything that God has for you. And we as a church will not experience what God has for us until we are in that setting where we truly learn to love one another. Last fall, as more people were coming to our church here, visiting, checking us out, people started asking some of us, do you guys have small groups at this church? And we did, but they were kind of a little bit below the radar screen. And uh, we realized that we might not have had the capacity that we needed to absorb a lot of new people into small groups. So uh, Rob DePron and I actually started co-leading a small group, and we called it New Friends. And we pitched it to people that had, had just started coming to the church. Maybe they'd been here one, two, three months, and they've never connected well yet. And so we wanted to give that opportunity and, and so we took signups, and it was only going to be for five weeks because the holidays sort of hemmed us in. We wouldn't have chosen that, but that's just the way it was. And interestingly enough, we ended up with 
12 people in this group. Now, I don't want to get like all spooky about that, you know, but I thought it was kind of cool that we ended up with 12 people in this small group. And so for five weeks we met, and I confess that my faith and my expectations were rather low about what would happen in only five weeks, but I was very pleasantly surprised when I found out that because we were all pretty new, that we sort of became each other's family. Two people in our group faced significant health concerns during that time. Who who do you think they turned to? They turned to the rest of the group, and they shared stuff with the rest of the group. Hey, I'm I'm worried about this. I'm concerned about this. And we were able to rally around them and and pray for them. And the emails went back and forth during the week. Oh, how did the testing go? And we're praying for you and all this kind of stuff. Uh, We each had the opportunity to tell our own story, whatever that meant to us, during the course of that time together. And it was amazing what people wanted to share with the rest of this group because in a short period of time, they learned to trust each other. And they learned that these other people had their backs And I would say we really were learning how to love one another in a rather short amount of time. Now, a couple weeks ago, I was like one of the last people out of the sanctuary after second service. And I look back over my shoulder as I left. There were four people still left in here, two groups of two in conversations with each other. And three out of the four were people from that new friends group. They didn't want to leave. They were hanging out with the people that they knew that they'd built a relationship with and enjoying getting caught up with them. And it was a graphic reminder to me that this really does work. God's design is a good one. And this is really where he wants us to be as a church community. Okay. Technology has... Technology has... Thank you. Uh, I think it just it just got tired. I don't, I'm not sure why. I just went to sleep. Um, life groups is what we call these groups here at Evergreen Covenant Church. Uh, in the past, they were called small groups or other things, but life group is the name that we have chosen for no other reason than we really want to do life together. It's not just to come and do one thing. You know, we want to we want kind of share life together. And as you leave here today, you're going to have the opportunity to check out the life groups here at this church. We actually have nine existing groups that have capacity for growth. And there will be leaders or representatives from all nine of those groups out in the lobby. There's signs on the wall. You can check out when they meet during the course of the week, if it's men or women or couples or everything, uh, or morning, evening, whatever. You, you can check all that out. You can ask and get your questions answered. And if there isn't a group that works for you, we have actually created three brand new groups. And these are groups that have zero members right now. So you can jump in on the ground floor, which is always really fun in a new group. One of them is the new friends group. We're going to run that again. Uh, Rob Depron. Uh, with some help, is going to run that group again. And so if you've just started coming to this church in the last few months and haven't connected, please check out the new friends group. It is designed specifically for you. Heart and Mind Discipleship is a brand new group. You can talk to the leaders out there afterwards and find out what that is about. 
And then one called Evangelists Anonymous. I I hope that the title is just intriguing enough to lead some of you to that table and ask some questions. So so here's the new groups, the existing groups that have space, sign-ups, people to answer your questions. There's handouts for each one of those groups. You can take it home and consider it. Uh, There's really no excuse to at least not check it out. Now, if you find that there is absolutely no group that works for you. Your schedule is so convoluted that you can't get into any of those groups. There's actually somebody out there with a uh, clipboard, happens to be my wife, who's seated up front here. And this is like, I want to get into one of these groups, but none of them work for me. We want to capture your name and stuff to see what we can uh, possibly put together. Please don't be in a hurry as you leave today. Take some time, check out some of these groups, and then go and visit one or more And find out which one is right for you. You know, when I look back on the 150,000 miles that I drove my vehicle with no functioning cruise control, it really makes me wish that I would have learned sooner how to turn it on. Uh, The car still ran. We still made it to our destinations. But I wasn't enjoying, appreciating, and experiencing everything that the vehicle had to offer for me. If we don't get this love one another piece right as a church, if we don't see how significant it is what Jesus said to the twelve and what he wanted them to be as a group so that they could go on and do the things he had for them, then we're still going to run as a church. We'll still function. We'll still be here. But I think we're going to sort of limp along. And I don't think we're going to experience everything that God has for us. We're going to miss out on his design for us as a body. And the end result is we're not going to be nearly as effective as we could be in reaching out to our community and our world. We really need to get this one right. Living out Jesus' command to love one another, I think of as kind of a switch that we need to turn on. And then we need to make sure that it stays turned on if we want to experience everything that he has for us. And I can't think of a better way to do that than to get involved in one of the small groups that we have at this church already. One of these Jesus-sized groups and start experiencing everything he has and practicing this love 1.5 that was the new command that Jesus gave to us. Pray with me, please. God, we do love you. And I know that we don't always get that right, but we are people that love you and we want to grow in that love. And I thank you for this opportunity to come together and to worship and express that love to you. And I just pray, God, that you would give us strength to do that and to grow in that. But I also pray, Lord, that you would teach us how to love one another. And that you would help us to see what kind of a context that best happens in. And for those that are in those kind of relationships already, that they can honestly say they've got a small group of people that have their back that they can study your word together and hear from you and do life together and enjoy meals together. God, I thank you for them. I thank you, and I know that exists in great numbers in this congregation. And for those, God, that that aren't at that place yet, I just pray, Lord, that, that we would each take 
advantage of this opportunity to get into a situation like that and experience what you have for us. It's, it's a great place to be, and there is joy indeed, but it is also that place of strength from which we launch to go and to love neighbor. This is your plan. It seems pretty simple. And I just ask for each and every one here today that we will fully embrace it. I thank you for our leaders who have led so faithfully the small groups that exist and those that have stepped up now to lead new groups. I thank you for your call on their lives and their responses to that call. And I pray, Lord, that each one of these groups would be situations that bring great pleasure to you and to those that are a part of it. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.